Welcome to this week's episode of the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your co-host, Neil Chatterjee, joined once again by my co-host, Brianne Depish, who's been crushing it, reporting on all things energy this week. Brianne, you've been busy. Talk to us about what you've been covering. Yeah, there's been a lot. This week has really ended on the news that OPEC is, is increasing its output of oil. This is followed by, you know, really pretty record highs that we've seen for futures of Brent crude, of Western WTI futures as well. Comes after the news that the EU has finally passed after four weeks a Russian oil embargo banning all seaborne imports. There's also some pretty significant news on potential for blackouts, I guess. Drought in California, all things energy and environment related. It really has been a flurry of really interesting news developments. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty heavy stuff and integral to what is happening in the world today. Let's start uh, with OPEC and the Saudis and uh, Biden's engagement. What what can you tell our listeners? What's, uh, what's happening there? So OPEC nations agreed on Thursday to increase their output by roughly 200,000 barrels per day of oil. They had stubbornly resisted to do this for months and months, saying that the marketplace was in good shape, that there was no uh, supply crisis, which, as we know, is, is really not true. You know, prices had been been raised for some time, even before the war in Ukraine. They were not really incentivized to do this, obviously, because Russia is affiliated with OPEC Plus. They have, you know, good relations or better relations with them. So that really was not in their best interest to do this. But for months, there has been a diplomatic effort by the Biden administration, I'm told, you know, on background and other reporting can confirm this, that there has been this diplomatic push to you know, potentially make inroads with the Saudis. And that was confirmed on Friday when Biden said that he would be traveling to meet with Prince Bin Salman, which is big, a big deal. And they were hard pressed to take this step. Basically, they are going to be increasing production to roughly 650 barrels per day beginning in July. That should hopefully pad the markets a little bit more, you know, and make things make supply a little bit better to help meet that demand. How did uh, Republicans respond to this? I mean, I have to imagine this fits into the argument they've been making that it's absurd that we're asking OPEC plus countries in some instances hostile actors to increase production while they're taking steps to limit production here at home. I can imagine, and this is just, this is foreshadowing at this point, but I can imagine we're likely to see some more calls for NOPEC. That's that legislation that you and I have talked about before. Basically, they are calling on the U.S. to basically take action against OPEC plus countries. It would enable the Justice Department, this legislation, to take action against them for basically monopolizing and um, artificially inflating prices. Yeah, it would really, I imagine that this will be the news that they need to take action on this legislation, which has really stalled. They passed it through the Energy Commerce Committee, but it's so far Schumer has declined to bring it up for a vote. So we're likely to see Republicans call on him and um, really ramp up that pressure. So this is all about gas prices here domestically, but also geopolitics and Russia. What role are China and India playing in this? And are any of these policies going to have an impact if they are going to continue 
to import Russian oil? This is a pretty loaded question. It's a good question. And there have certainly been arguments from a lot of smart people essentially saying that the impact of recent actions by the EU, the the long-awaited oil embargo, for instance, which they finally passed. Basically, they were ar- the argument that some are making is that it's not really going to have any tangible impact on Russian output because they're saying they're really just going to, it's not going to limit production. It's just going to redirect it to India, to China. And they have all increased their supply in the past month. India has never imported so much Russian oil, so much as it has during the month of May. I would need to actually look at the numbers to give you the exact the exact quotes. It has been at a record high. They certainly have no supply of buyers, right? That's the argument that people are making. And whether or not Europe cuts off its supply of Russian petroleum might actually hurt their wallets a little bit more than Russia's. And they seem to be willing to make that sacrifice, at least in the short term. Is it, is it sustainable long term in your view and based on uh, the reporting you've been doing? It depends on a couple things, basically. This is a phased in ban, so they will have time to hopefully secure additional supplies. Landlocked nations such as Hungary, which really put up a fight for this um, and was the reason that it took four weeks rather than rather than the forecasted two or three days that the European Commission predicted. Landlocked nations will have a little bit more time. That's actually why they they changed the language to be seaborne imports so that countries that receive Russian oil via pipeline can still continue to get it. So that that's somewhat mitigated, makes the immediate impact on Russia a little bit lessened as well. And it, it should honestly, though, they are expecting um, an increase in inflation and increase in prices for Europe. And uh, already leaders are warning their people, especially ahead of the winter months, just brace for pain and to be paying more, just kind of like we're doing here in the States. This is all so heavy and complicated. Look, this is an energy focused podcast, but I know like the geopolitics around engaging with Saudi Arabia and MBS in particular. And we think about Jamal Khashoggi. Can you speak a little bit to like just the broader implications of of what it means for our domestic politics that, that we're in this position that because of a energy driven crisis, we're having to engage with the Saudis in this manner? It's not great, certainly from a humanitarian standpoint. You know, it kind of circles back to these conversations that really enraged most Republicans and a lot, some Democrats as well, earlier this year when the Biden administration was in talks with Venezuela and when, you know, they were in talks with the Saudis a little bit earlier, when all that came to light. That infuriated a lot of people because, like you said, these are really delicate foreign relations at play, a lot of diplomatic concerns here, certainly. And then also, Biden. Biden has acknowledged, I think, for for the first time, you know, the limits of what the U.S. can and cannot do. We saw this uh, during actually a White House a White House event on infant formula shortage. Basically, Biden said he was like, "There's not a lot we can do in the short term to to decrease pain at the pump and to increase supply." I guess he's like, "This is something that, unfortunately, the short term we're just going to have to live with." I think that is the starkest acknowledgement we've seen from them that you know, in the next couple months and probably for the better part of next year, nothing is really going to change. And it might, in fact, get worse. Thank you for giving some insight into these complex global issues. You've also been doing a lot of great reporting here at home tied into this front. I know you reported that the Biden administration was moving to lower lease rates and fees for renewable developers while they're simultaneously moving to increase 
royalties for oil and gas leases on federal lands. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what what you picked up in that coverage? Certainly. So it's it's a little bit incongruous uh, with some of the actions they've taken. You know, they've said they're going to make it easier for domestic suppliers to, you know, uh, really procure these leases and, you know, at, while at the same time restricting the amount of land available, increasing the royalty amount, things of that nature. But yeah, they've also said they were going to uh, subsidize some renewable projects. This is more of an effort, kind of an outreach uh, to appease the, the environmental groups and some of the green groups that Biden has spent the last couple of months really alienating a bit. Certainly haven't been his biggest fans. We've seen a lot of a lot of pushback from them on some of the some of the actions that the administration's taken. They're really between a rock and a hard place here on a lot of issues of energy security. They're not popular. They're not really even going to have an immediate effect. So uh, unfortunately for Biden, that's the line. He's he's been forced into this position just as the leaders in Europe have been. And it's uncomfortable for everyone. Moving from there, talk to us about Bristol Bay and Pebble Mine. You know, obviously Alaska is such a key state for energy in the U.S. Alaska's Senator Lisa Murkowski, longtime chair, ranking Republican on the Energy Committee. I know this is a huge issue for her. She's been working on it for a long time. But the Biden administration proposed some restrictions that would uh, that would block pebble mining. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about that? They issued a proposal to block mining projects in Bristol Bay permanently, basically siding with environmental groups over miners. This has been a very, very loaded topic for years now. It would kill plans for the development of the massive Pebble Mine Project, which is, for those of you that don't follow this as closely, it is an open pit gold and copper mining project that has really sparked years of deep opposition from local tribes and fishermen. But it's also been, you know, in, we've seen industry folks really siding heavily with this, you know, arguing, arguing for the project's importance. So it delivers a pretty, it, a really near fatal or completely fatal, barring any court developments, really fatal blow to the project, which after years and years of lobbying and, you know, I imagine significant costs that have gone into it. So that's been another, I guess that's been another overture that he's made to the environmental community. And what's been the reaction from Alaskans, from Senator Murkowski, from Senator Sullivan, from potential congressional candidate Sarah Palin? So this has been absolutely praised by a lot of people in that area. You know, this is something that, like I said, tribal groups have pushed for. We've seen kind of resounding praise from these groups. They were also really pleased by steps the EPA took. They proposed basically under Section 401C of the Clean Water Act, took steps to reverse a Trump-era decision on permitting projects that allows state and tribal groups to have more of a say. So that was also, that drew praise from the head of a tribal tribal council. So I, th I think they've been happy with steps. This is certainly more in line with Biden's pledge that they were going to walk and chew gum at the same time in their efforts to both take steps on energy security while also appeasing these green groups. To be clear, the, the green groups and the tribal groups are happy, but the Republican congressional delegation, I imagine, is quite upset about it. Absolutely. And so we're going to see we're going to see them double down here. We're going to see increased criticism, I imagine, as gas prices continue to rise, as prices writ large continue to rise. Summer driving season is here. It's upon us. Gas prices 
are every single day just, you know, surpassing, climbing even higher, reaching new record highs. I think there was a JP, uh, JP Morgan analysis that said they were expected to cross into the $6 threshold by August, which is pretty nuts. That's nationwide. That's a level we've never seen before, even accounting for, you know, inflation and changes since 2008. That would be unlike any other prices at the pump we've seen. And Biden and Democrats are likely to see a lot of political heat from that, especially ahead of the November midterms. A lot of focus on the price of the pump, but you did some reporting kind of comes into my wheelhouse and, and it's a, it's an alarm bell I've been sounding regarding the price in our electricity bills. I have noted in past episodes of the Plugged In podcast that I am concerned about the possibility of different conditions, whether it be extreme weather, lack of capacity, electricity shortages, leading to a reliability and affordability crisis in electricity this summer. You did some reporting on the water use restrictions in California. California is in the midst of this historic drought. What are the implications of that for Californians and for electricity and reliability this summer? To me, that's actually one of the most fascinating stories. Like I said, Southern California, yeah, imposed these massive drought restrictions on 6 million residents, basically, you know, limiting their, I think they're allowed to have outdoor water usage. So things like watering their lawns, et cetera, once per week, anything above that, they will face first a warning, then subsequent like fees and violations that will just increase in price. And they've said, this is temporary for now, but if things don't improve by September, restrictions could get worse and it could totally, you know, they could cut off outdoor water water usage completely. But, you know, they're doing this step because they are in they're in a very severe drought. It's the third consecutive year where I think they're considered to be a period of exceptional or very severe drought under uh, the US Drought Authority. 97% of California is under at least conditions of severe, extreme, and exceptional. I believe those are the three categories. Drought, which is insane. You know, that's along with a lot of the region um, in the West writ large. And that's significant because it also really decreases, it has a direct impact on energy in the state. They receive, I believe, in a normal non-drought year, it would be, I think, roughly 15% of their of their electricity would be through hydropower. And obviously, you're the expert on this, Neil. You know, you can speak to that a little bit. But they said, I think the Energy Information Administration put out an estimate that said they expect hydroelectric power basically to be cut by roughly half of what it would be in a typical year, just due to the current drought conditions. So yeah, I think that I think that ties into a lot of what you've discussed in previous episodes, threats the grid writ, writ large. And that's not just in the West. I mean, it really sums up the complexity of this whole thing that the irony is, as we are taking steps to mitigate carbon emissions, to deal with the worst impacts of extreme weather and climate change, we're potentially compromising reliability. And that reliability is being further threatened by these extreme weather events, droughts, wildfires, uh, extreme heat, extreme cold. It is a serious, serious topic. And again, I hate to keep beating this drum. And it's not good for a podcast and it's not good for a reporter, but I'll say it again. The key to all this is to make energy policy boring again. When energy policy is boring and you take the politics out of it, we can deal with these really complicated issues in a, in a, in a smart and skillful way. But, oh, my, there's a lot going on. Speaking of, one last topic, and, and it's really impressive, and I think for our listeners, like the range of issues that you're covering – this was a big one in my wheelhouse. You know, as you know, during my time at FERC, big focus of us was, you know, evaluating applications 
for infrastructure, for natural gas pipelines, for liquefied natural gas export facilities, lots of questions about NEPA, about climate analysis, and about the social cost of carbon. So you did some reporting about the Supreme Court reinstating the Biden's use, uh, Biden administration's use of the social cost of carbon metric. A number of conservative states, red states, if you will, attorney generals had challenged this. I believe it was a Fifth Circuit decision that stayed implementation of use of this metric, but the Supreme Court allowed it to move forward. And, I, and I'm curious, there's been a lot of people on pins and needles about what SCOTUS may do in regards to EPA's ability to regulate carbon emissions. What did you what did you make of this decision? What are the implications? You know, was this a, a question of standing? Do you think this was on the legal merits? Do you think this telegraphs anything on what the Supreme Court may do in this big EPA case? Sorry for all these questions, but I'm fascinated by this and I love that you reported it. Thank you. Biden uh, issued an executive order that directed the federal agencies to return to using the interim social cost of carbon number of $51 per ton. That was the level used under Obama, and it was significantly scaled back under Trump. That determines decisions that are made through various federal agencies. Oh, I think under Trump, it was just $1 per ton, though you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, The administration issued that return to the $51 on an interim basis. They were weighing whether to increase increase that number to as much as like $148 per ton. So we could see a significant rise. Basically, the Supreme Court just didn't really detail its decision. They just said it would allow the Biden administration to use that higher estimate for now in a single line. It didn't detail further further decisions on that one way or another, but it is a temporary victory for the Biden administration. I don't know how much it's going to resonate beyond us industry folks and reporters, you know, in the immediate term. But it will, to be clear, will definitely have an impact on people, whether they realize it or not. It's not the sexiest, most, you know, buzzy thing to focus on, but it's absolutely, from an impact standpoint, it will absolutely have have a big impact on administrations. I believe different, a lot of different rules and actions, that was at least the administration's argument, would be impacted. They used it to auction off leases on public lands, offshore lease sales, and OMB uses it in a variety of rules and actions as well. Well, Brianne, thank you for a great analysis, recap of all the fantastic reporting you've been doing. I think it's just wonderful for me and our listeners to hear about the breadth and depth of all of that you are covering. But we always like to close with something light. You know, look, you're, you're a Texas girl. You've been in D.C. for a little bit now. We're becoming friends in addition to being podcast co-hosts. So I know a little bit about you. I know that uh, we had a recent long weekend with Memorial Day here in D.C. And you did a bit of a staycation. Tell our listeners what a Texas girl learned about what it's like to stick around D.C. in a long summer weekend. Well, Neil, coming from this past Memorial Day weekend, I can tell you that uh, I've learned firsthand the humidity remains unchanged from Texas. The heat and the heat and humidity feels about just, I know they call this the swamp from Houston, which one could argue also gets pretty swampy. The weather made me feel right at home. To that point, we did a little bit of grilling. We got to go to my friend's rooftop, you know, do some swimming, some grilling. And then we also discovered the wonderful nearby town of 
of Leesburg. And this is not a, a sponsored post with the city of Leesburg, but we actually got to go berry picking, which I understand I learned for the first time is only the berries are only good for roughly two weeks per year. So you got to kind of get in on that window pretty quickly, which we did. We went there for a little day trip. We picked some berries. We walked around. Yeah, it's pretty cool. A lot of a lot of range in, in the area. We drove, we got to drive down kind of through more of the hill country. I don't think they call it that here. I think like the Texas hill country. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of incorporating that, that terminology. But yeah, it certainly felt like an escape from DC. So it was a great day trip and a really, really good long weekend overall. How about you? Did you do anything fun? No, no, I'm boring. I've got three kids, chase them around. But thank you for that, for a great episode of the Plugged In Podcast and appreciate uh, you and all our listeners. Have a great week. Jim. Thanks again for listening to season two of the Plugged In Podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern time. You can also keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter written by yours truly, Jeremy Beeman.